0: Good morning, Transit family. How's everyone doing today? We good? Yeah, awesome. Well, hey, if you're new here at the Transit Church, we're going through a sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn them on or turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. And um, as Kevin Witt mentioned during the announcements, uh, today's kind of marking the end of our 21-day fast. Who here? Uh, has just been loving the fast, not necessarily the hunger pains, but what the Lord's been doing in their lives. has been good, good 21 days? Amen, yeah. Fasting is like one of those things where you don't get too much excitement, but it's good for you, all right? And so the way we're going to close out the 21-day fast is tonight from 6 to 7.30 p.m. We're going to praise our King for who He is, what He's done. Uh, we're going to share some testimonies of what the Lord has put uh, on uh, our hearts during these 21 days, and spend time praying over our church and our uh, region and... Uh, our world. So if you uh, are free tonight and make it there, I think it's going to be a very special time. We hope to see you there, uh, and child care will be Provided. Okay, so quick recap of where we're at in the book of Nehemiah is it's 445 BC. Nehemiah is cut bare to the Persian king, King Artaxerxes, and uh, there comes a day in Nehemiah's life where he gets word from his fellow Israelites from Jerusalem that Jerusalem uh, lays in ruins. All the city walls and the gates have been burnt down and destroyed, and that news cripples essentially Nehemiah. He hits the floor and he begins to weep and to mourn, and to fast, and pray for three to five months. He seeks the Lord, and he's burdened with this pain of the brokenness that's over God's city, where God's glory dwells, is to dwell in the midst of his people. Um, and uh, and so he's burdened, and he's praying, and his consistent prayer that we looked at uh, two weeks ago is, Lord, would you grant me favor in the sight of King Artaxerxes, would you send me, would you use me to be the agent who goes and rallies the people of God to rebuild the city? But step number one for Nehemiah, after three to five months of fasting and praying, was getting favor with King Artaxerxes, and so what we saw last week is that a divine appointment kind of happened, and uh, <laughs> Nehemiah kind of stumbled into a conversation with King Artaxerxes, and King Artaxerxes started this conversation, and he says, Nehemiah, you look like a hot mess, brother, what is going on, Right? And Nehemiah freaks out because you're not supposed to look like a hot mess in the presence of royalty, right? You always have to be smiles and, uh, and happy-clappy and all that stuff. And so Nehemiah is afraid. He begins to pray. He relies on the Lord's strength and power to get him through that conversation. And God made the opportunity for Nehemiah. God made the opportunity. And Nehemiah, by the power of God, takes that opportunity, and he presents his full request to this pagan Persian king of everything he wants to do, For God's city, Jerusalem. And here's the wildest thing ever: is that a pagan Persian king, King Artaxerxes, grants every single request of Nehemiah? Nehemiah says, "Uh, King, give me permission. Your your varsity squad cupbearer, like the best one you got, send me to be gone to to oversee this. Uh, give me permission to go. That request was granted. That Nehemiah, you can go, you can leave here and be installed as the governor of Judah over that region and oversee the rebuilding of the wall? Secondly, would you give me a a letter with your seal, kind of a VIP pass lanyard, so when I go to the province beyond the river and people are going, hey, what are you doing, you Israelites, starting an insurrection, rebuilding the city, the defensive structures of that city, I can say, hey, the king himself, you have an issue, take it up with the king himself. And we're going to see how that comes into play in our text today. And the third thing he requested was, King Artaxerxes, give me your Home Depot credit card. So all the, uh, all the DeWalt drills and saws we need and the lumber, all that stuff, um, uh, we, we, there will be no supply chain issues for this build, right? And that's what we see. So that, all that's say, that's the recap. That's where we left off is verse eight of chapter two where Nehemiah says, the king granted my request. Why? Because the good hand of God was upon me. Nehemiah knew that, he, that because his heart desire and his plans and wishes for God's city to be rebuilt, the reason he had favor with King Artaxerxes is because he first had favor with the king of kings. God made this happen. God was the one who rebuilt the walls through his servant, Nehemiah. Without God's power, without God's plan, and without God's favor over that, it wouldn't have happened. So that's where we left off. What we're going to start is we're going to read the text together, pray, and dive in. Sound good? Y'all with me? All right. If you need coffee, find it in the, in the multipurpose room. All right, Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate, and the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley, and inspected the wall, and I turned back, and I entered the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, for the gift of your word, and the gift of your church, your bride, Jesus. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would come and search us through your word. That we would leave here transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. Holy Spirit, where, there's conv- need, where there needs to be conviction, would you bring conviction? Where there needs to be encouragement, would you bring encouragement, Lord Jesus? Where there needs to be faith instilled, would you instill faith today? And we surrender our lives, you're worthy of it all. We surrender these next few moments to you. Have your way, Lord Jesus, with this time. Have your way with our hearts and our minds. We pray, Jesus, that you would be magnified, you would increase, and I pray that I would decrease and be forgotten up here today. And we pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. All right, well, to quickly kind of paint the picture of what we just read, what we see is that Nehemiah is rolling westbound from Persia to Jerusalem in kind of like a military convoy of sorts, right? Like, if I am putting myself in Nehemiah's shoes in 2022, imagine Nehemiah is rolling in, like, the black SUVs with the tinted windows and the government tag, you know what I'm saying? And, like, if you're ever downtown D.C. and you see the sunlight hit an SUV and you see guys with, like, assault rifles in the back, um, maybe some of you, that's your job here at the transit. Um, <laughs> that's why you're not laughing, like, dude, don't, anyways. Um, that's the image I get, is that uh, uh, King Artaxerxes gave him kind of a military convoy, the supplies he need, armed officers, and he's en route to Jerusalem. But to get to Jerusalem, you have to travel through Samaria, which was just a little bit north of Jerusalem. And uh, he encounters the governor of Samaria, Sanballat. Everyone say Sanballat. Yeah, we're gonna, his name is going to come up a lot in Nehemiah. And Sanballat has kind of like an evil henchman, Tobiah. Okay, So we're introduced to these guys, and we see immediately that it completely displeases them, to say the least that Jerusalem is being rebuilt. and a large story, a large part of Nehemiah, we're not going to spend too much time talking about Samaritans and the conflict between Jews and the Samaritans and all that stuff. We're going to talk about that persevering through opposition in chapters to come. But remember those names; they are not pleased. But what Nehemiah does when he encounters them, he's like, y'all, listen. Here's, here's the lanyard and here's the king's seal. I'm the governor of Judah now and you're going to let me pass whether you like it or not. And so he, gets, he passes them, and then he gets to Jerusalem. And finally, the moment comes where Nehemiah, remember, uh, he was born and raised in exile. He never went once stepped foot in Jerusalem. The moment comes where he steps foot in God's city. Uh, all of his dreams, all of his prayers, all of his cries to God and fasting has come to fruition. And the impression we get when Nehemiah steps foot in Jerusalem it's like it's all business for him, right? It's almost like just this laser-like focus. The weeping is over. He's kind of he's calm in the pocket. and has this like SEAL Team 6 uh, mission-mindedness. And his first mission was this. Get a comprehensive, fully honest report of just how bad the damage is to the city, right? Uh, Nehemiah had to first see how bad the damage was in order to know what it would take in order to rebuild it. And this step was so important that Nehemiah didn't want anyone to know about it. It was like G14 classified, like TS clearance with polygraph, all of that stuff. It was a classified mission, and he didn't want anyone to kind of interfere with and muddy the waters. He says in our text, not even the priests knew about it, the nobles, the the officials. Nobody knew initially why he was there. And so then Nehemiah goes full ninja on them. And he goes out by night, kind of in disguise. He doesn't roll out in the convoy with the black SUVs. He takes like a one animal, the, the, the 07 Toyota Corolla, throughout Jerusalem. Nothing wrong with that. I used to own one. Great car. Uh, for three nights. And he leaves not a stone uncovered in his inspection. And the impression we get is that every single wall, every single gate gets a full detailed report on just how bad the damage is and what it's going to take to rebuild this the right way. What it's going to take to rebuild this the right way. And so all that to say, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of different ways that Nehemiah could have been tempted to respond to the brokenness he encountered in Jerusalem. And the title of my sermon is Responding to Brokenness. Responding to Brokenness. And so for the remainder, uh, excuse me, For the remainder of the sermon, we're going to look at um, kind of the, the three different ways that Nehemiah could have responded, and how you and I are often tempted to respond when we encounter brokenness in us and around us. And the first thing we see is that Nehemiah could have minimized the brokenness, he could have minimized it. Nehemiah could have gone to Jerusalem and he could have lied. He could have lied to himself and to others. He said, hey, 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 you know what? Is the damage really that bad? Is a city without walls really that big of a deal? I mean, let's not get carried away and kind of overreact like a bunch of legalists here. We don't want to be legalistic, right? Let's not overreact here. How about, how about this, guys? Instead of a full overhaul of the city walls and gates, let's just do like one And maybe we don't need to do something exalted. Anyone got duct tape? Like maybe we can just duct tape this back together on top of the rubble. Like let's let's kind of, is there an easier way out? He could have minimized it. And here's the bottom line if if, if Nehemiah minimizes the true, honest extent of how bad the damage is, there is no walls and gates that are going to get rebuilt. It's going to be built on a faulty foundation. And so, stated differently, without brokenness being fully and honestly revealed, it cannot be fully healed. Without brokenness, being fully and honestly revealed, my, 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 it cannot be and will not be fully healed. Cavities, exhibit A. Uh Uh-oh, now you're squirming. Anyone here like to go to the dentist? Said no one ever, right? Right? Okay, so Jen and I got married when when we were in our our mid-20s, and, you know, I was fresh out of college, and I don't know if maybe college students go to the dentist, but when I was in college, I didn't go to the dentist once, right? And so my wife, who is amazing, scheduled an appointment with me to go see the dentist, and uh, let's just say some some brokenness got revealed (laughs) in my mouth. But here's the deal. The reason I didn't go to the dentist is I was minimizing the problem. I'm, I'm young. I'm in my 20s. It's just a little cavity. Is it really that big of, of, of a deal? And the dentist, when you open up your mouth and, and he sees and he gets the light shining in there, it's not just, for me, it was, it was uh, the, the number of perfection in the Hebrew uh, uh, <laughs> scriptures. That was the amount of cavities I had, right? But the only way that those cavities get healed is what and I got to lay down in that chair and I got to open my mouth and I got to say, shine the light fully leave nothing behind, a full honest report of what's going on behind the scenes. That's the only way those cavities are going to get healed is full honesty. And if we're honest with ourselves, our primary uh, response when we're confronted and convicted with our own sin and our own brokenness is minimizing it, right? We minimize the extent of our sin and our brokenness. We minimize the quantity and the quality of it, all of us, if we're honest, have an inner lawyer. And we some of us have really good inner lawyers, right? Like my inner lawyer is amazing, okay? And yours is as well. It's called the flesh, all right? And here's the common, the twofold common refrain that your inner lawyer uses in your defense to not repent when God is calling you to repent and start restoring what is broken and partnering with the Spirit's sanctifying work in your life. One is we minimize the quantity. We minimize the quantity of the sin and the brokenness. We say the common refrain, the first refrain of the inner lawyer is, it's just a little bit. It's just a little. What's so wrong with just a little bit of XYZ? A little bit of resentment. A little bit of unforgiveness. What's wrong with that? A little bit of this once a week or once a week. What's the problem? Other people do it more than I do. It's just a little. It's a little bit. You know, all it takes is a little flame to go uh, undetected in your house to burn the entire house down? Just a little bit. We're talking about sin here. We're talking about that which can drag you to hell or pull hell up into your life? Secondly, we minimize the quantity. Our inner lawyer is great at that. But then we minimize the quality, the extent, the quality of the brokenness. Well, is it really that bad, we say? Isn't everybody else doing it? I mean, come on. Let's ease up a little bit. Is it it really that bad? Just a, a little bit of resentment in our hearts, a little bit of anger, a little bit of lust, a little bit of that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, we just went through a Sermon on the Mount sermon series. You all know what Jesus says about that. He says murder starts with your heart. starts with just a little bit of resentment and anger in your heart. He says if you just look at a woman with lustful intent, you are an adulterer. So all that I say whatever issue in your life that you say the most, whatever whatever issue in your life where you are saying this the most about is just a little bit and it's not that bad, that's you minimizing sin. And where and watch this, where you and I minimize sin, we continue to give it a free pass to destroy our lives and the lives of others around us. Romans 8:13 says this, "For if you live according to the flesh, you will die." But if, by the Spirit of God, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Jesus never once, the Scriptures never once exhort us to minimize and marginalize and excuse our way out of our sin. He doesn't tell us to minimize sin. He says, mortify it. He says, don't let that thing get oxygen. You put it to death, Romans 8.13 says. (laughs) Amen. All right. All right. That was not in my notes for effect, all right? John Owen says this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Stated differently, declare war on that which has declared war on you. Your sin has declared war on you and wants to bring you to death, but thanks be to God, he's entrusted to us, he's imparted to us the gift, the precious seal and promise of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and we partner with that sanctification that, that, that Holy Spirit who sanctifies and cleanses us and conforms us to the image of God. So again, the rebuttal could be, come on, just uh, like, is my shopping habit that big of a deal, right, Nick? I just like shoes, okay? And I, I got more shoes on the way. You know, whatever. Whatever that is for you, if your inner lawyer is going nuts right now, you're saying, is that really a big deal? Let me ask this question. If Nehemiah, because he minimized the problem, rebuilt every wall and every gate except for one, would that city be safe from enemy invasion? No, right? Like he could have, he could have, he could have done the inspection and been like, ah, oh, man, okay, like the dung gate. Man, do we really want to rebuild that? Is that a big deal? You know, like, does anyone really go through the dung gate? Like why, like that's not a big deal. Like nobody's going to come that way. Let's just let, we're the third wave of exiles coming back. Let's like, fourth wave, you get dibs on that one. All right, we're going to rebuild everything else. Is that city safe? No, First Peter 5, 8 says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the Scripture is crystal clear: is that you and I have an adversary, a supernatural adversary, who hates you and wants to devour you. And the key line in First Peter 5:8 is that he's prowling around. He's prowling around. The implication here is this: is the enemy is is never coming at you directly. Right, in all my years of ministry, I never heard someone say, I saw, I saw the devil, and he said, hello, my name is Satan. I've come to destroy your life today. Like, that's never once happened. I've never heard that before. Instead, with the demonic is circling kind of your residence to see, hey, did they leave this, this window open on the side? Did they, did they, because they minimize the importance of locking the back door, but they lock the front door, but can I get in through the back door? All it takes is one. One, so what I'm getting at is wherever you're most prone to minimize sin is probably the most consistent way the demonic is getting access to your life. To destroy you and to destroy those around you. And so my question to you before we move on to point number two is this. Where in your life are you consistently minimizing your sin? Where in your life are you consistently minimizing your sin? And what would it look like under the grace of God? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, to start rebuilding, to fortify some walls, to rebuild some gates, to set some watchmen on the walls of the city. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do, close from it. Secondly, Nehemiah, instead of minimizing the brokenness, he could have just flat out ignored the brokenness. Nehemiah could have gone to Jerusalem, plugged his ears, closed his eyes, and just ignored it. And instead of building God's city, he could have dedicated all of his time and resources to building his own city, his own kingdom. We saw in the text last week that the king even gave Nehemiah permission to build himself a house. Like, Governor Judah, I need a house too. And, and Nehemiah asked, and he said yes. So Nehemiah could have spent all of his time and resources to build like a new 20,000 plus square foot governor of Judah palace an hour like northwest of Jerusalem, Right? Like, he could have done that. Egyptian cotton on the whatever, Italian marble, you know, all that stuff. He could have done that. Meanwhile, Jerusalem would lie in ruins because Nehemiah is too busy closing his eyes and plugging his ears pursuing something else. He's igno- he could have ignored the brokenness. And I think there's sometimes a faulty thinking we wrestle with as followers of Jesus, where we think, we think this, as long as I'm not doing bad things, I'm good. Like, I'm following Jesus. I'm fulfilling my life's calling. And nowhere in Scripture are we as followers commissioned just to stop doing bad things, right? Like, we have, I mean, do we not have a greater king and a greater calling than that? Like, that's JV stuff, right? right? Like, oh, I'm just, I'm just avoiding sin. My life is, you know, whatever. It's like, we got a beautiful calling. Jesus has commissioned us. He's passed the baton to the church continue the work that I have started, the restoration of all things, the reconciliation of all things. And so the Christian anthem, the follower of Jesus, our battle cry is the Lord's prayer. Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. That's our prayer and that's our calling, our commission to pull down the the ethics and the beauty and the healing and the the love and the justice of heaven in our broken world. Meaning this, Jesus hasn't redeemed us to just stop pulling hell up into the world. We're redeemed now to pull heaven down into the brokenness of this world and see what God can do, see what Jesus can do to begin to rebuild some things that, that sin is damaged and the demonic has divided and destroyed, Jesus came to restore all things. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explicitly says that we are the salt, that we are the light of the world, using the definite article, not an indefinite article. You're not a salt. Like, we got some Himalayan salts. We got some straight up with the, the, the classic salts, whatever, you know, I'm, I got a picture in my head of, anyways, that blue, yellow, you know what I'm talking about? Anyways, anyway. it's not one of many is what I'm trying to get at, all right? It's one. It's one. You are the salt, the light of the world, meaning this, there is no other restorative agent to a dark and decaying world than the church of Jesus Christ. So if we don't live to pull the ethics and the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the kindness and the restoration of heaven down into the sin-cursed, demonically infiltrated world, who besides us will? Who besides us can? We are God's plan A for the world. This is church. We had our, um, an Acts 29 pastor at Portico Church in Charlottesville, uh, this, Jesus changed this guy's life. He's a felon. He's in the juvenile detention center. He met Jesus there and uh, did uh, ministry in juvenile detention center centers in uh, uh, Illinois for a long time. And uh, we linked up through my Acts 29 assessment, and it was just the providence of God, how we got to talking about his story. I was like, hey, could you, could you come and, and train our team? up? So we had a Zoom call with him on Tuesday night, and it was just amazing to hear his story, uh, to, to just glean from his experience in uh, juvenile detention center ministry. And he um, and he said this, he said, you transit church are God's plan A for your area. And the rocks, he didn't say this part, but the rocks are plan B. The rocks crying out are play, plan B. You and I are plan A for the pizza slice, for our neighbors that live next door to us. If we don't go, who's going to go? Like we've been entrusted with the gospel. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus has transformed our lives. He saved us. If not us, then Who? And so what I'm getting at is this, is we can't ignore brokenness. We have to actually run full sprint towards it. We can't ignore it. We have to run towards it. And if this is the primary thing the church has been commissioned by Jesus and clothed with power by the Holy Spirit to do, if this is the primary thing the church needs to chase after, then the devil's greatest tactic to render us ineffective is simply to get us to chase after something else. All right, so bullfighting. I'm not endorsing bullfighting. Nobody read me an email, okay? But if you've seen bullfighting, not that I've ever seen a bullfight, but I've seen the cartoons of bullfighters before, and usually they're like six foot five, but they weigh 100 pounds, and they're in this like really cool outfit that's all, you know, flashy, and they have, you know, the whole thing. And it's just them in the ring with this massive, like, thousand pound bull with five foot horns that are razor sharp, right? On a one-to-one basis, that matador doesn't stand a chance against that bull, right? And, and the bull here represents, I think, the, 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 the church, the resurrection power of Jesus, the power of the gospel to change lives. I mean, we're, there's power, right? Go read Ephesians 1. Learn a little bit about the power that Jesus has entrusted to us, his power, his authority, what he's done for us. We're sitting on that we're reigning with Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6, see with him in having places. And the matador in this illustration represents the devil. doesn't stand a chance. He's actually under our feet. Romans sixteen twenty says, the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That Jesus is reigning and ruling above all rulers, authorities, powers, and dominion. And, uh, and, and therefore, since we're seated with Christ in our union with him by faith, the, 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 the demonic is under our feet as well. And so what I'm getting at is this, is the devil's greatest tactic that he can use to pacify you and pacify me is, uh, is to simply distract us and say, don't look at the commission Jesus has given you. Don't worry about the lost that don't know Jesus or the orphan, the widow, the homeless, the, the incarcerated. Don't worry about actually pulling heaven down into the world. Don't worry about me. I don't exist. That's not a thing. But what are the two primary ways that I think the, the devil uh, distracts us, the church in the West, and I'm guilty as charged, is keeping up with the Joneses and keeping up with the Kardashians. That's what He does. I mean, let's be honest, right? Uh, Keep up with the Joneses. Work, work hard, more, 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 more. There's nothing against glorify God in whatever vocation he's called you to do and work with excellence in all things for his glory and the good of the kingdom. But keeping up with the Joneses isn't an end in and of itself. We've been entrusted with something far greater, right? Something far more, but but do all this and, and work 15 jobs and over all this stuff so you're exhausted. And so then the devil says, you're really tired. Now keep up with the Kardashians. Ooh, there's a new Netflix series that everyone's talking about. Hey, by the way, I helped write it. It's completely demonic, but you should watch it too. So you're known as a cool Christian, right? Is that, too, is that too much? Sorry. Anyways. So whether, I mean, fill in the blank. I mean, I think what if, what if the kryptonite to an otherwise, I mean, massive army storming the gates of hell, what if, what if our kryptonite, and I'm sitting under this as well, is the devil just giving the church a screen and a Wi-Fi connection? surrender us completely ineffective. We're just, you know, I I think um, the power of a thousand pound bull would just destroy a matador. Don't watch YouTube videos of that. It'll, you know, whatever. But if you've seen it happen, like, the thing, the dude doesn't stand a chance. Like, that, that bull can fling that thing completely over its head. But the genius of the devil is simply saying, chase after this. Oh, not, hey, another big of a deal. Minimize the chase after this. If he can just redirect our attention from the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us, then he renders us completely ineffective. And meanwhile, he still gets to destroy what God cherishes. And I think the cure to this is we need to realize that we are at war, that there is a great conflict going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, and that we got work to do that Jesus had, when, when Jesus entrusts to us the, the restoration of all things, that we would be the salt and the light to the world, Jesus is saying, hey, church, we got some rebuilding to do. we got places to go. we got people to see. we got a gospel to preach, and we got a devil to crush underneath our feet. And before uh, I I'm, I'm, move on to my last point, what I, what I would just encourage you, step number one would be this. If, if you've been uh, crying out against apathy in your heart this fast 21 days, I'll be the first to raise my hand. God, purge me of apathy. Oh my gosh, that's like, gosh, just purge me of apathy. Give me a burden. Give me a fight. Put a fight back in me, Lord Jesus, for the lost. A hunger for your kingdom to come in power. Ask God to purge you of your apathy and put a fight back in you. A good gospel grit, a chip on your shoulder to ask God to train your hands for battle. And then let's see a lot of people September 10th at our next evangelism training on Saturday, September 10th. New Life Global Ministries is coming. They came in May 7th. We've seen a ton of fruit. We're going to share some testimonies of what happened last month when we went out into our community. Two people got powerfully touched by God, and divine appointments happened, and we were outside for like 40 minutes on a Sunday afternoon, and the kingdom of God broke in pretty powerfully. It was awesome. We're going to share those testimonies uh, next week. September 10th. What is better spiritual warfare than evangelism? Amen? Like getting trained and equipped with tools to share the gospel, the most powerful, beautiful, life-changing news on the planet, the death and resurrection and ascension of our king. So be there September 10th. uh, Put, like you ever have seen that Rambo gift, put on the red bandana and come ready to storm the gates of hell, all right? So the last thing, uh, as I, as I, (laughs) I don't want to get your hopes up here, as I slowly wrap up. Uh, The third thing that Nehemiah could, he could have minimized it. He could have, um, What did I just say? The second point was, he could have ignored it. Thank you. That was a test. You passed. And then second thirdly, he could have surrendered to the brokenness. He could have surrendered to it. Upon seeing the full extent of the damage to the gates and the walls, Nehemiah could have believed that Jerusalem was hopeless, completely irredeemable and beyond repair. Nehemiah could have said, this is, whoa, my gosh, this is way worse than I thought. This is completely beyond repair, completely beyond our ability to fix. Man, Jerusalem, it's laid in ruins for over a hundred years, and it'd be foolish of us to think that we could rebuild over a hundred years of ruin. Let's pack our bags and let's go back to Persia. If there is a currency that's trending right now in 2020 and beyond, it's cynicism. That's the primary currency that's trending right now. Anyone here battled with cynicism? Two two hands raised for this guy in the past two years. Got a war against that. Cynicism says everything is a mess. Nothing can be restored. Nobody changes. And what what cynicism does, cynicism, what it's all about is this. It's where we overemphasize the quantity and the quality of the brokenness around us. And we put more, please listen, we put more faith in the devil's ability to destroy than Jesus' ability to rebuild. We put more faith in the devil to destroy than Jesus to rebuild. And when we do this, we essentially surrender to the brokenness around us. We throw in the white towel and say that there's just certain situations, there's certain people that even Jesus can't restore. Certain messes I'm in, certain messes that other people are in that, man, they're just out of reach. Jesus can't touch. And a classic example of this is the death of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus, if you know the story, Jesus gets word that Lazarus, whom he loved, is sick to the point of death. And he waits. He doesn't rush to heal Lazarus. And when Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, he gets word that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four days dead. Okay? Um, the decay has set in. We learn in John 11 that it's like the stench is emanating from that tomb. And if there's a situation where at first glance it seems like Jesus can't redeem and resurrect, it's Lazarus being dead for four days and a stone being rolled over his grave, okay? And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, says this to Jesus in John 11, verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, we're going to stop at verse 24. Don't go to the next slide. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha had faith in the future tense, Jesus. Martha had faith in the kingdom that was coming, not the king and kingdom that had already come. And there's a tension that we believers will navigate until we get to glory. It's called the already and not yet of our salvation, right? The already but not yet is that Jesus Christ, when he preached the gospel, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The king just done showed up on the scene. And devil's getting cast out, people are getting healed, we're seeing the restoration of all things as the work of Jesus. And our king is coming back to fully restore. But the kingdom right now is broken in. And uh, so we're going to be constantly living in that tension of of expecting Jesus to show up because the kingdom has come, and yet waiting and hoping and clinging to the hope that one day Jesus will return and restore all things. But if we're honest with ourselves, where we place our faith in Jesus is in the future. I mean, right? And in 2020 and beyond, that's where I've been struggling with. Okay, I'll cling to the hope of glory. Everything else is a dumpster fire. Lord, I don't see where you're at in this. And I love the response of Jesus. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge that. He says this essentially. He doesn't acknowledge it, but this is what he says. Jesus said to her in verse 45, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this. Martha goes future tense resurrection and Jesus goes present tense on her. It doesn't matter that I just will be. I am presently in this situation, the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you have any idea who's standing before you? I am, not I just will be, but I am. And so the implication then is this. I want to instill faith and courage in you if you find yourself in a mess or you're in a situation where you're saying, this person is beyond hope. Listen, what we learn from John 11 is this. It doesn't matter how long the decay has been. It doesn't matter how bad it stinks, All that matters is whether or not Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He gets the final say, not the decay, not the darkness, not the brokenness, not the sin. There is no life. There is no situation that he cannot redeem. Because He said, I will not just be the resurrection and the life. I presently am the resurrection in the life with whatever you find yourself in. It's what he came to do was resurrect and make dead things come to life. And so where in your life have you thrown in the towel saying even Jesus can't redeem this mess or this person is too far gone? Listen, the devil isn't the only one on the loose chasing after people. The devil is not the only one prowling around. We got a roaring lion, the lion of Judah, who hasn't been contained in the grave. He's shot out of the grave and he's reigning and ruling over all things. And he's present with us and among us by his spirit. The crux of our faith, our crux of our faith is based upon the fact that the lion of Judah, someone say amen, has not been contained in the grave. But he is shot out of the grave as the resurrection and the life, and he is on the loose. And he's seeking out the lost to be saved, the sick to be healed, the oppressed to be delivered, brokenness to be restored by his love and his grace. That's our king. He's on the loose. Ain't nobody safe. You aren't safe. And nobody in your life doesn't know Jesus is safe from his grace and his reach. He is on the loose as well. It's not just the demonic. It's not just the demonic. Got a little fired up. Ben, you can come on up. Conclude with this. Nehemiah didn't minimize, he didn't ignore, he didn't surrender to the brokenness. Here's what he did. Nehemiah 2:17. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with his gates burned. I love this. Come, let us build. We're going to talk about that next week. Come next week we're going to talk about how that invitation of Nehemiah to the people in Jerusalem is Jesus's invitation to you every single day of your life. Come, let us build. Let's go to dark places. Let's press into broken situations and let's build something beautiful together. Nehemiah's response wasn't Jerusalem wasn't beyond repair. It wasn't too far gone. No, with Yahweh's favor, with the Lord's power, with the Lord's provision, brokenness could be and would be restored. And this is the reality of our lives for those who have trusted in Christ Jesus. Because the only reason we're here today, cleansed from all of our sins, rescued from the grip of hell, restored to sweet communion with God, and eternal glory as our inheritance, is because of the way our Savior Jesus Christ responded to our sin and brokenness. He didn't ignore it. He didn't minimize it. Jesus didn't surrender to it, saying it was too big of a deal. No, what the scriptures clearly teach us is that our Savior, Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection on our behalf, is that he triumphed over those things. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over the demonic. He triumphed over death so that our greatest enemies could be defeated and that now every day in our lives is a day where we wake up in victory and not defeat. Sure, there's seasons in our lives that are hard, seasons in our lives where it feels like the devil's the only one at work, but we always operate from the position of victory because our Savior, her, who we are united with, by faith has resurrected and defeated our greatest foes. The victory has been won. And I'll conclude with Colossians two, thirteen through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by doing what? By triumphing over them in him. Let's respond in prayer before we take communion. We're going to respond to taking communion and and praise, and let's posture our hearts. I'll go silent here. The scriptures encourage us to examine our hearts before we celebrate the Lord's Supper and invite the Holy Spirit to come into your mess. Invite Jesus to come into your brokenness and see what he wants to do, see what he wants to say, and then I'll close us in prayer. God, we thank you that you are omniscient. You see everything, God. Nothing has escaped your sight in our lives the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know more than anyone else the full extent of our brokenness and our sin. And Jesus, you knew that fully of just how wicked our hearts were. The lies, the deceit, the rebellion, the wickedness, and you saw that. And you didn't keep your distance. You didn't just condemn from a distance. No, you pressed in and you took on flesh and walked among us. Because you love the sinner, Jesus. Jesus. You loved us, Romans five eight, while we were still sinners. Jesus, you died for us. Lord, we say thank you, Jesus. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you give the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of pardon to those? who are coming and the you holy spirit have convicted them and they're crying out to you lord where they hear their refrain that you are faithful and just to forgive us from all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and jesus the holy spirit now would you invite us each of us is going to look different for all of us what the next step is where are you inviting us to build something beautiful partnering with you in our lives lord god what does repentance look like today so Lord, we bring uh, praise and thanksgiving to your name, Lord Jesus, that it's all it's by grace that we are saved so that no one can boast, God. All of us come to the cross on an equal field, sinners redeemed by the undeserved grace of God. So thank you, Lord, for the gift of your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of new life. And we just say you're worthy of it all. Amen. All right, well, let's respond by taking communion. This meal shows us, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared one last uh, Passover meal with his disciples, and he he said, take this body, this bread, he broke bread. He said, take this bread, which represents my body, which is going to be broken for you, and then drink this wine, which will represent my blood, which is spilled for you to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And this meal, this, this, what this meal commemorates is, is the truth of our brokenness, the, 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 full ex, uh, the full extent of our sin. If we look at the, the highest price that could be paid to cleanse us from our sins, it was the life and body of the very Son of God that was given for us. And yet we also see that even in spite of our brokenness, that God loved us and redeemed us out of it because it's the body and blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and completely rewrites our story. Completely rewrites our story. So let's take this meal with thanksgiving to Jesus Christ, who's forever changed the destiny of our lives. He's totally rewritten the narrative of our lives. So the body of Christ broken for you. On the blood of Jesus shed for your sins. Am I. Amen. Amen.